The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're going to be in Genesis uh, 47. If you're using one of our blue Bibles, it's on page 23. Genesis is the first book of the Bible where it all begins. When I mentioned the year 2008 and the American economy, what comes to your mind? Crash. That's right. Collapse. Society, economy, downfall, right? The downturn. When maybe for some of you it's more uh, personal than that, not just as abstract as those things. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I lost a lot at that time. That was a rough year or a rough season. It was a rough time for many in America. Businesses closed. People were laid off. Uh, life savings were depleted. It was a bleak time in that uh, season. But it was in the midst of that, uh, I just want to tell you a personal story as we begin. It was in the midst of that that God brought Aaron and I to Texas. Uh, we were in Chicago at that point on staff at a church there. And uh, in 2008, we moved here uh, to a couple hours west of here uh, to a place called Camp Eagle. And amidst the uh, hardship, the economy collapsing all across America, God was prospering this tiny little camp out in the middle of nowhere that was committed to inspiring Christ-like change. And so while everything else was collapsing, this place was actually flourishing. It's flourishing on the banks of the Nueces River. And Aaron and I were hired to uh, begin this summer camp program from the ground up. We were hired September 1st, 2008. Um, that summer was really my first experience in the Texas Hill Country. And uh, we had nine months to build a camp from the ground up. I mean, everything, buildings and fill the beds and hire staff and everything so camp could be up June 1st, 2009. And praise the Lord, God did it. God uh, did it. It's not to boast of us, but it was a time when many ministries and churches were closing down, were low in numbers, were heading in the opposite direction, the same trends as the rest of the American economy because donations were drying up. People didn't have expendable income to send kids to camp and to do those extracurricular things. And yet in the midst of it, this one place was flourishing. It was flourishing. God preserved his people. God preserved this place in the midst of that collapse. And beloved, this is what God does. This is what God does. He always will. He always has. But write this down because it's a theme of our passage. You can write it at the header of Genesis 47. And it is this. God preserves his people. God preserves his people. He always has, he always will, and he will all the way to the end. And this is what, as we continue in Genesis 47 in our series, that God meant it for good, looking at Jacob's family, primarily through Joseph and then Judah and all these other brothers, that this is the theme of this chapter. It's our nugget of truth. It's the precious treasure that we must grasp. God is preserving this family through a devastating famine, through prosperous, uh, or through uh, low times, and he is prospering this family. While everything else around them is withering, Israel is blossoming. So let's read Genesis 47. Turn there, uh, if you're not already, and follow along here as I read our chapter so we can see it for ourselves. 
Genesis 47 picks up and says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. When Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able among, uh, men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of uh, Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone, all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other, only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. 
the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 47 begins exactly as Joseph said it would at the end of 46. No kidding, right? Kind of follows right along from each other. This family has just been reunited after decades of separation. They've experienced the lowest of lows, the highest of highs. We've looked through all of their, the betrayal, all the family messed upness. And now they've been reunited and they are in Egypt, Israel and his 70 family members. They left that promised land and God is orchestrating the, this uh, rise of Joseph and now putting them here in the best of the land. And only God, only God with the long view in mind could strategize a plan like this. This family, they settled in Egypt. They're now before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the whole world. Here's this low family, this, these, this, through this son that went through prison and in slavery and all that, God orchestrating to now make him Pharaoh's right-hand man. And now his family is right before him. God is preserving this family, and he is preserving his family who first, let's get deeper in here, let's look at it closer, he's preserving his family first who walk the low road, who walk the low road. This is where we left off in 46. Remember, there's this whole thing. Joseph had instructed them uh, at the end of chapter 46 to say that they were shepherds, said, we're going to come before Pharaoh, and this is what you need to tell them. You need to tell him that you are a shepherd. It's playing out exactly as he had planned, exactly as he had told them that was. And then it comes here, they go in, they tell Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, he brings them. And Pharaoh's first question, what line of work are you in? It's a pretty normal question, right? We ask that, we meet new people. Tell me, what do you do for a living? Apparently it's an introductory question back in those days as well. What do you do for a living or what is your occupation and they said these five uh, men the five brothers were not told which ones they are probably the biggest the handsomest the most strong who knows but he brings them and they answer your servants are shepherds as we were and what's interesting is they answer humbly Remember, shepherds are an abomination. Egyptians did not like them. Chapter 46, just look back to the very last verse. It says shepherds were an abomination. Egyptians did not like them. And so by answering that, hey, we're shepherds, was to take a very low posture, a humble approach before the highest, most powerful man in the whole earth at that point. We're just shepherds, as our fathers were. This is our heritage. This is our legacy. And as they answer humbly, look at what Pharaoh does. He elevates them he elevates them he answers this and he he answers favorably but look at verse six he says if you know any able men put them in charge of my livestock 
So not only do they come in, they get this, this beautiful land in the land of Goshen, the most fertile time is at the, where the, the Nile River emptied into the Mediterranean Sea and that Nile Delta where the soil was still rich in the midst of this famine and this desert-like conditions, they get to uh, settle there with their own livestock that they had brought from Canaan from the promised land with them and now Pharaoh is saying now this is your occupation have all of my livestock and this is going to be important because well we've already read it Pharaoh becomes pretty rich in livestock pretty soon doesn't he he's about to have a whole pile of cattle but first God here he elevates Joseph he's now elevating the brothers Instead of boasting of their skill and their accomplishments, hey, we're pretty good shepherds. Yeah, we've had great uh, multiplication. We, you know, we've got herds numbering in the thousands. We, our losses are minimal. We employ the latest techniques in, you know, in shepherding and in, in uh, predator protection, all that. No, they don't boast. They just humbly say, we are just shepherds. And Pharaoh takes notice. Beloved, God takes notice of those who walk the low road. God takes notice of the humble. Sometime at this week, look up Isaiah 66, verse 2. I've mentioned it before. You can write it in your notes, but it says this. This is the one, this is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the one to whom God notices. Not the one who is boasting, not the one who thinks too highly of himself. It is the one who is humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 says it in a different way. It says, clothe yourselves therefore with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the one whom God notices. It's interesting how 1 Peter puts it, right? He says, clothe yourselves with humility because outfits get noticed, right? If somebody is dressed up and they're dressed to the nines, they say they're looking sharp today. But God, God looks beyond those things. What gets God's attention is humility. His eye is watching the low road for those that are walking the low road. And humility is hard, isn't it? Humility is, is, is difficult. We are naturally prideful, puffed up, self-absorbed people. And it's one of those traits that we, we, we can never claim of ourselves. We can never claim necessarily that we've arrived. Because as soon as we say, oh yeah, I'm a humble person, it kind of defeats the purpose, right? Therefore, we are not. And we don't even really want anybody else to point it out. I want to say, oh yeah, Gabby, you're pretty humble. Because as soon as we do, or someone tells me, then that just kind of puffs up our pride as soon as somebody points it out. And so it's one of those precarious ones that as soon as we say it or someone else, it put, it's just endangers the whole ship. So how do we walk the low road? How do we work on this in our own? How can we... Uh, how can we do this in and among ourselves? If this is what God wants us to do, if God wants us to be humble, if we want the Lord's attention, knowing that that is the person to whom he looks. Well, let me just help you with this. Here are three things that you should watch in your life. Three things for you to watch and to, I would say, invite a brother or sister to walk with you. You know, we don't always want somebody to point it out, but it's uh, helpful when we are taking the high road and not the low road. And Hear me when I'm saying the low road, not, not like the, you know, like going in the ditch. 
hear the metaphor, right? The humble road. Not like the low ball road, like we're trying to cheat somebody, but the humble road. The humble road. Here are three things to watch and to ask a person. Maybe it's somebody in your small group. Maybe it's your spouse. But first, watch your language. Watch your language. Just as you hear how you speak, is your language filled more with personal, I did this, I did this, me, me, me. Or is your language filled with, God did this. God is, gets the credit or somebody else gets the credit. Even when we are being encouraged, even when somebody is, is uh, blessing us, we can give credit to the Lord. We can give credit to the others that were a part of it. Just watch your language. How do we speak? Is it in a manner that draws the spotlight onto us or are we deflecting it back to the Lord and to other people? Watch your language. How out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Second, and this is going back to 1 Peter 5, 5, watch your wardrobe. Watch your wardrobe. Not necessarily the things that we're saying. This is not a, uh, an admonition to modesty. But the, the idea of clothing yourself is your manner of life. The character traits that uh, exude from your life. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. How do you carry yourself? Are your actions selfless or self-serving? Watch these things. How, how are you acting? Are you, are you, gentlemen, are you being chivalrous? Putting your wife and your kids and others before yourself. Is that the manner of your life? Or are you always trying to get the best seat, the best place, to get there first, to, to, to get the most? Or are you putting others before yourself? What is the manner of your life? We watch our language, we watch our wardrobe, and finally, watch your heart. This is where it all stems from. The first two are external. They're very obvious. They can be, uh, they can be watched in your own life with just a little bit of self-reflection and from those around you. But as we watch our heart, it's those things, it's the things that pop into your mind, those things that you would probably never say. Just, you know, especially because maybe we're in the South, you know, and there's all these, uh, you know, Southern niceties and things, those things that we would never say, but we think it. I'm better than that person. You know, if, uh, if I was in charge, I would do it a lot differently. Those thoughts that are like, you know, maybe it's just like, well, they just don't understand. Everyone is out to get me. Those thoughts of, if they would only see it my way. And thoughts like that, those things that pop up in our heart, we should pray and ask God's spirit to set off an alarm saying, we're full of ourselves. we're full of ourself. I need to walk the low road. I need to be humble. Watch your heart. Watch your heart. Pray, ask God's spirit to convict you. Ask God's people around you. That as those things crop up in your life, we're walking a dangerous and we want to be people who walk the low road, for it is these whom God preserves and keeps. Walking the low road also means, look where our passage continues, it also means blessing others. It means blessing others. We are people who bless others. These are the ones whom God preserves. Look where it goes. After this whole exchange goes with, uh, uh, between Pharaoh and the brothers, now Joseph brings in his father. He introduces Jacob or Israel to Pharaoh. And what's very interesting, look at, at the verse. Look at uh, verse 7. Who blesses who? Does Pharaoh bless Jacob 
Or does Jacob bless Pharaoh? Look at it, verse 7 of 47. Who blesses who? Give it to me. Yeah, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. It's okay to talk back. It's, it's good. You know, it's a, I like a little uh, back and forth here. It is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh, and it actually happens twice at their introduction and at their goodbye. He blesses them. It's likely a verbal encouragement of something, but this is the, the person in, in uh, the position of power and authority would be the one who would bless and who would greet. And now Jacob... Jacob is blessing you. And this, this should set off our, our understanding and remind us of the covenant that God's people, those the, from Abraham, the Israelites, would be a blessing to the nations. And so Jacob gets this as he comes before him. He blesses Pharaoh. And don't you love Pharaoh's kind of introductory statement? This guy comes in and look what he says. Basically, how old are you? <laughs> I, I, I like Pharaoh's questions. Maybe there was other, but Moses in writing this and recording, it's the first thing. This old man comes before him and Pharaoh is just like, holy, how old is this guy? How old is he? And he says, I'm 130 years old. And he says, basically, few and evil have been my days. Apparently, he's not living the Vulcan life to live long and prosper. His days have been few and evil. It's funny, guys, Okay. But he blesses them. And then what happens from there? We have this whole exchange. They go back and then Joseph, Joseph blesses the rest of his family. He settles them into the best of the land, the land of Ramses in Goshen, as we've already talked about. But this is a life of blessing. Jacob blessing Pharaoh, Joseph blessing his family, serving them. These are the people whom God preserves. You know, these, this, this just kind of reminds you of one of these things. Joseph has now been elevated. He's the, you know, the, the 11th of 12 brothers, and he's had this series that God has worked in his life, and now he's the most powerful man in the, in the, uh, or the, the second guy to the most powerful person in the universe. He's got all these resources uh, at his fingertips. He has led the charge through this famine. Now his family is here, and so he is blessing them. It's like those stories you hear of pro athletes who sign big, you know, they get their first contract, they come out of college, they've just been drafted, and what do they go and do right away? They buy their mom a car. They buy their parents a house, right? There's, you hear those stories, uh, ESPN, you know, puts them out there of those uh, of those people. And that's really what's happening here. Proverbs three twenty seven says this, do not withhold good from whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. You know, and it's really cool, even beyond just those stories that we hear as your pastor, I get to hear all kinds of stories of this happening even in our church. Small groups coming alongside one another and blessing one another. Somebody walking through a, a difficult season and our church coming around, deliberately blessing people in their small group, people in the community, things that, you know, never make the newspaper, nothing, no, we'll never get a, you know, a big accolades for it. But who sees it? The Lord sees it. Aaron and I ourselves were just recipients of some unexpected, we don't even know who, of a blessing. We had uh, some truck stuff and took it in and walked in and they said, hey, your bill's been paid. Thank you. Whoever did it, I have no idea. Just a story of blessing. And you know what? Just as your pastor, it makes me so grateful that this is the culture of our church, even so young. That you are a generous people looking to bless one another, that you're eager to give, you're eager to serve, you're eager to sacrifice for the blessing of one another. And may God really preserve that spirit 
in our church for many decades. Unless he comes back. Come quickly, Lord. But we would love that. God, this is the people that God preserves is who blesses one another. May this be our, may, may this be our, our reputation, not only as individuals, but even as a church. Even as uh, we grow and as God uh, uh, expands us, may that be the reputation of our church. Oh, you go to redemption there, a church that, that blesses one another. Those people, they really know how to be a generous blessing people and encouraging people to one another, to our city. May that be who we are. Can we be that? Can we be a people who are constantly asking, who can I bless today? As you wake up and you go to work, as you raise your kids, as whatever is on your plate, can you wake up and be, just have this thought in your mind, who can I bless today? Who can I serve? Who can I pour out? As you go to school, what other student, what other teacher, what person can I be a blessing to today? Beyond just individuals, can we be a people whose families just think, who can I bless this week as a family? Get your kids in on it. Be teaching and discipling in doing this. Who can we as small groups bless together? That this is just thoughts that are constantly on our minds. This was a part of the covenant. This is a part of what God gave through Abraham and his offspring, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And ultimately, Ultimately, that came through the Savior, the gospel being the blessed blessing, the best blessing, say that 10 times, the best blessing that we could give and offer to others. That he is the hope of the world. May we be quick to share the hope that we have in the gospel, unafraid in our witness. But when does this blessing shine the brightest? When does God's People, when does the gospel shine the brightest? When the world around is darkest. When the world around is darkest. And so God preserves his people. Look where the chapter continues on. He preserves his people who endure the collapse of society. Who endure societal collapse. Remember the pattern of faithful giving that we've seen in Joseph, or faithful living a faithful giving, a faithful living in Joseph. It begins with being a blessing, which then they get more responsibility. And then comes a time of hardship, which produces the need for endurance. This is, we saw this over and over again as we've been in our series here, happening in Joseph's life. He's blessed. He, he does what is right. He then gets more responsibility. Some hardship comes. Some conflict comes. And he has need of endurance. And as he endures, then the pattern begins again. This is happening even in the brother's life. It's still happening here. They've been blessed. They've been given more responsibility. And hardship is happening around them, requiring a greater need for endurance. And so we just read this, this ugly situation happening, right? Starting in verse 13 and going through verse 28 here, it is really a story of Pharaoh getting richer while the people are losing and willingly giving up everything. Do you see the pattern? It first begins with they give all their cash money. Verses 13 and 14, they've paid for the famine. This is, the famine is here, it's dried up. They know because Egypt through Joseph has saved the grain and so people are coming from Canaan from all over the place buying as much grain as they can. Now their bank accounts are empty. And so then what's the next stage? What do they then sell? As the famine continues, they need more seed. What do they give away next? They give away all their livestock, 
horses, cattle, everything they bring to Egypt, to Joseph, to pay for it. They give it all away. And all that in the first year. And so remember, just, just to make the connection here, who now has charge of all of this livestock? Joseph's family in the land of Goshen. They got a lot of, of animals to take care of. And all this is in the first year. They drain their bank accounts. They drain their barnyards. And then they come before the Lord in the second year. And they're like, hey, the famine is still here. We're still hungry. We don't have anything to give except ourselves and the land. And so they willingly, then they willingly, in verse 18, they sell themselves into slavery to the government and give up all their land. And so now Pharaoh has all the money, his bank account's deep, he owns all the animals, he owns all the land, and all the people. Everything belongs to him. And Joseph is in charge of it. Except what we see there, verse 22, except for these parcels of land that are set aside for the priests, they've got a fixed allowance. This has been a biblical practice that even other secular uh, 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 cultures and countries have taken up, but they are provided for. They have uh, these special allowances, these special things, even like we have in America, there's clergy exemptions and things. But everything, everything belongs to Pharaoh. Famine continues. So now they have nothing to give. And so what do they do? They set up this land leasing agreement, don't they? They set up this land leasing. Here's the seed. They've they've got lots of land, this massive labor force. And so here's some seed. And at the harvest time, how much do they have to give back? 20%. If you're not good with fractions, one-fifth, whatever, it's 20%. Okay? That's That's a pretty hefty sum, right? Next time we're filling out our taxes and all that and whatever it might be, just think, well, if it was... 20%, 20%, some things maybe are. But this is a big, and they lease the land back, and all this to say, society is collapsing around them. People are giving up their freedom. They're looking to the government to preserve them. And meanwhile, meanwhile, look at verse 27. All of this is happening all across the land, and meanwhile, God's people have looked to the Lord. They've settled in the land of Goshen, and they were what? Fruitful and multiplied greatly. They gain the possessions. We know that, the livestock. As society is collapsing, God is preserving his people here. And as everything else is heading in this direction, God's people are heading in this direction. Whereas Egypt is now this incubator. They came in with 70. We know God, part of God's promise and his covenant with his people is that, they would, uh, that their offspring would multiply greatly, would number the, greater than the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And God is using Egypt in the midst of this, of this famine to be an incubator that they may mo- be fruitful and multiply greatly over the course of the next 17 years, we're told. And so the famine is seven years and that's happening and now it just kind of bumps out in, in the chronology of this passage. And so for 17 years, they are thriving and prospering in the land of Goshen. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this beautiful? Because here's something that in God's economy, here's a principle that we see, have seen in this passage and we see it all throughout human history. The most hostile is the most fertile. In God's economy, the most hostile is the most fertile. When circumstances are most hostile to the gospel and to God's ways, 
It is the most fertile times for gospel proclamation, for God multiplying his people in that time and in that area. Human history has shown this time and time again. That's, this is where the gospel finds fertile soil. It was true here. It's true in the book of Acts. As the Greco-Roman Empire is trying to squelch the spread of this Jesus and the gospel and all that, believers are made rapidly. Churches are being planted all over the place. It's true uh, even today in countries like China and, and Southern Asia and those where it is illegal to be a Christian, where persecution is the heaviest, and yet reports are coming out of those countries of multitudes of people coming to faith. In the most hostile environments is the most fertile soil for the gospel, beloved. We don't need to fear persecution. We don't need to fear these things because God is working in and among it. Just last week, I was meeting with a group of our uh, GCC pastors, and one of them had just come back from Romania, a country that is a couple decades now coming out of communism, but just not a real stable economy, things going on there. And yet, guess what? We've got almost... A dozen, I think there's 10 and two or three more church planters there in the country of Romania where the gospel is thriving. These churches are growing and these pastors are proclaiming the gospel and people are coming to faith and growing in their faith and sharing the gospel with their neighbors. It's happening all over the place. It's happening on college campuses, even as they uh, are going uh, uh, more secular and away from scriptures and away from the fundamental biblical truths that we love and hold and are, are denying basic religious liberty uh, or, or rights. The gospel is propagating. God is working. The soil is yet fertile, even in the most hostile of environments. Beloved, don't fret even as America becomes increasingly anti-Christian. Don't fret even as religious liberty laws are uh, given up. Our hope is not in religious liberty. Our hope is in God's preservation of his people. Our hope is in God's faithfulness to his covenants. We don't have to fear. We don't have to lose hope. Our future is bright even in the midst of the darkening clouds around us. It doesn't matter what Fox News is telling you. It doesn't matter what stories you're reading on Facebook about how dark the world is becoming because the gospel light is still shining bright. Amen? Amen? Can we have some hope in that? Can we have some joy in that? That God's goodness is still happening. He is preserving us. If, we, if our Bible intake is greater than those, our Facebook intake, we would see that there is great hope to be had. That God's preserving his people. Let God strengthen you, even in a passage like this. Even when it seems like all of those things are being stripped away from God's people in America. Come and read a passage like this and let our hope be renewed in the preservation that God has for his people. He will give endurance through stories like this. They are recorded for that very reason, Romans 15 says. That these things have been recorded that we might have hope and endurance as those who believe we endure through the darkest of times, through the collapse of society. But finally here, finally, let's finish up our chapter. God preserves those who persevere to the end. Who persevere to the end. 
See, in the midst of this, society's collapsing, people are giving up their rights, and yet God is preserving his people, and now it's coming to the end, and Israel, or Jacob, this is Israel, his, Jacob's covenant name, he knows that his days are coming, and so he calls his son Joseph to him. We're bringing this, this story is coming to a close. We have a few more weeks, a few more chapters to look at, and he calls Joseph to him, speaks and they make a solemn oath it's a euphemism for an action that is uh, much more personal but this is kind of like a handshake something that is very intimate as they make this deal but what ultimately this is showing us here by his request is that Israel to the end of his life is so confident in God's promise he's so confident in God's promise that included the promised land See, so he has the long view here. He knows that Egypt is just an incubator. Look at, look at it with me here, verse 29. It says, do not bury me in Egypt. Verse 30, but let me lie with my fathers. He knows this is just an incubator. God had promised this land. And so he's, this is important. It seems kind of weird, like, okay, why? Or you're just making like final arrangements. It's kind of a normal conversation you have with, with the you know, elderly people as they're kind of making their plans. I want to be buried here and the just the arrangements that happen. But it's more than that. Because what we're getting insight into is that despite Israel's up and down, Jacob, you, you know, if you've read Genesis, you know anything about Jacob's life. Does he, have, does he have a perfect history of faithfulness? Has he always trusted the Lord in every circumstance of his life? Not at all. He's just like you and I. He has ups and downs and some real blunders and some real high points. But here, as he's getting to the end of his life, he has confidence in God's promise and that is what is fueling this request not to be buried here but to take him out and to bury him in the cave of Machpelah like his uh, ancestors had, his father and his grandfather had. God is preserving him as he perseveres to the end. They go back and forth. Joseph says, yeah, I'll do this, of course. He bows himself ahead of his staff, his bed, and... Uh, Maybe you're looking at this, you're like, wait, wh wh which is it? Which is it? Does God preserve us to the end or do we persevere to the end? Yes. Yes, God is the instigator. He's the sustainer. He's the perseverer of your faith. His grace is the source of our perseverance in the faith. It's as if God has given us the bike. He's given us the route. He's given us the fuel. He's given us the friends to ride with. But we get on the bike and we ride all the way to the end with the confidence knowing that we will make it. And this is the beauty of the gospel as I get on my bike, and as maybe some of you get on your bike on Saturday to ride in that VCCR, you've got 55 or 110 or maybe just 20 miles ahead of you. You would get on our bike with great confidence knowing that we will make it to the finish line because we've got great support. We've got great people to ride with. We've got a great training program. Despite the cramps, despite the sunburn, despite the crazy drivers trying to open up their door and knock us off of our bikes, trying to run us into the ditch, we can have the confidence that we will persevere to the end. Here's how we can say it. Look at, look at this, it'll be on the screen for you. It's a great way to say it. It says, it says it this way. All those who are saved will persevere to the end. And only those who persevere to the end will be saved. 
working together. We have a real responsibility to persevere, to trust the Lord, to walk with him, to make it to the end. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 communicate this beautifully. If you've got kids over in Redemption Kids, they've been memorizing these verses. Ask them after the service and see if they can get it. But it says, it, it says this, that uh, it is God who, or work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's see if I can get it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That call, that admonition to us that we must keep up the faith. We must persevere. We must work in our sanctification, becoming more holy, saying no to sin and yes to godly living. But the following verse is this, but it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we can do it with great confidence, persevering to the end every day as God is fueling our ride. As we are training. But you have to be in Christ. You have to be in Christ. Are you in Christ today? Have you placed your faith in him? Has he given you the fuel to ride? Otherwise, all your striving, all your effort, all your riding is for nothing. You can't do it. You can't do it. It begins by casting yourself on Christ or repenting of walking that low road and saying, God, I can't do this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm apart from you. I have no hope. I have no help. Come, fill my life. My faith is in Christ, the one who did ride it to the end, the one who is sustaining my faith now. We walk through life clinging to God's promises feeding our soul on the bread of life, knowing that our life is hard. Our life is hard. Our testimony may be like Israel's. Few and evil have been my days, or they've been long and prosperous. See, as we come to a close here, beloved, this is what God does. He preserves his people. He preserves our faith because it was bought with the hefty sum of Christ's own life, and it has been sealed with the guarantee of God's Holy Spirit. He persevere, He preserves us to the end. See, beloved, it was God who made a way for Adam and Eve despite their sin. It was God who preserved them. It was God who remembered Noah in the midst of an exceedingly wicked world, we're told. It was God who rescued the Israelites out of slavery just a few chapters after this in uh, Egypt and took them into the promised land at the Exodus and preserved them for 40 years as they walked through the wilderness. It was God who protected Israel from annihilation in the days of Esther and Mordecai. It is God who has preserved his people since that time, even in our own recorded history. It is God who has preserved the Israelites, the Jewish people as we know them now through Nazi annihilation. And really since the beginning, since this promise was made, since God made a covenant with his people, our enemy has been bent on destroying God's people, but he has preserved them. And the very fact here, regardless of what you believe politically or what you believe about the end times and the future for Israel, the very fact that they are still an ethnic people group today should give you hope in your own faith that God preserves his people and keeps his promises. And he will do it for you. Just the fact that they are still around years later. All of these other uh, tribes and nations that were in those days, Canaanites, who's heard of them? They're gone. All the other Izites and Parasites and Perizzites and all those things from the Old Testament, where are they now? Gone. 
God's people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're still around. God preserves his people, even in the midst of everything else collapsing around them. God has remained faithful to his promise to this family for several millennia, and he will to the end because it's an everlasting covenant never to be broken, and God too, God too will preserve your faith, your future, your salvation. If it is in Christ, it is secure. It is secure, beloved, when you're ready to give up because life is hard. When, when you have those thoughts of is Jesus is following him, is this all worth it? When there's a big decision looming, when change is on the horizon, when religious liberty is being stripped away, when relationships are going sideways because of your beliefs, you cling to this truth, this truth, that God will preserve my life. 